Welcome to Lost Anchorage, where Crude investigates the mechanisms of crime and violence in Anchorage, Alaska. My name is Cody Liska, and I'll be your host. Through research and interviews with professionals, law enforcement, and those affected by crime, I hope to build a better understanding of whether or not Anchorage is in fact becoming more dangerous. By the end of this series, I hope to create a portrait of crime in our city, for better or for worse. Good morning. My name is Claude Muff Butler, ex-drug dealer. And now what I do in my life, I teach kids how to play basketball and focus on school. So Muff, I wanted to talk to you today because I think you're an ideal example of what it looks like to turn your life around after being involved in crime for so long. But before we talk about where you are now, let's start with how you got into selling drugs. I was living in Anchorage when I, I had went to school, I'd been to college, went overseas to play, and I just decided to take the easy ride out. This was about, this was back in 87, and I just made that decision, which was the worst decision of my life, was to sell drugs, you know, and that's how I got into it. What was your your first drug deal like? Well, actually, I don't remember the first sale that I actually made, but what I do, what I do remember is when I first got into the game, we had a couple of workers and I ran a crack house. You know, so what that is, people would come to the house, purchase, and then they would leave. But I didn't actually make the transactions. I had workers that would make the transaction and then give me the money, you know? Okay. So otherwise, say you, uh, you would have the drugs, answer the door, give them what they want, and then give me the money because actually I was working for somebody else. You understand what I'm saying? I think so, yeah. You know? And that's how you run a crack house. You have people in front of you, so you're not making no exchanges. So if the police come up in there, you basically can't be charged because you haven't made no sales, you know? So there was a uh, an in-between person, basically, that would make the sales and give me the money, okay? So that's how it went for me. I didn't actually get out there, not when I first started, because back then you was working off a beeper. You give out your pager number and people call you and you would meet them somewhere and makes the exchange. But when I first started, probably for the first year, I actually was running a crack house. And why did you get into a lifestyle? Or why did you get into that lifestyle to begin with? It was easy money. I didn't want to work, to be quite honest. You know, like I said, that was the worst mistake I made in my life was to get into the drug life. Because, and this is my opinion to me, a drug dealer is similar to a drug user. You know, they out there on the drug users, the people that are addicted to the drugs, they out there all night getting high, and we out there supplying it to them. So what is the difference? We just like them, but we just not getting high. And what were you selling? Crack cocaine, powdered cocaine. Okay. That's it. 
And about what year was this? It went from 87 to 90. Then I went to jail in 90. Then probably 93 to 97. Went to jail in 97, got out in 2000. Went from 2000 to 2004, went to jail, got out in 2009, and I've been good ever since. So 2009 was the last time you were in jail? Yeah, I got out in 2009. And it it sounds like you have a pretty comprehensive understanding of the drug scene in Alaska from the 80s. Well, the 80s and the 90s, parts of 2000, it didn't change because it was the same drugs. It's not like now. Now you got all types of different drugs. You got the meth, you got the heroin, you got the pills. Back then it was cocaine. You know what I mean? It was crack cocaine. Mm -hmm. You know, now it's not crack cocaine. It's the opiates. It's the meth and everything else, you know. I don't know what else is out there. I haven't been out there on the streets since 2004. Yeah, 2004, because I went to jail in 2005. So it's been 15 years. So it's different now. I, 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 can't, I think the drug scene is totally different because it's a totally different drug. Mm -hmm. You know, you're talking about heroin and meth, prescribed pills, you know, so yeah, it's totally different. Can you take me through what a day looked like for you. <laughs> a day of selling drugs, huh? <laughs> Nothing, basically just a bunch of, especially uh, after I gave up the crack houses, it was basically just answering my pager, running around town, calls all over town, you know, making deliveries, basically. You're like a delivery driver. Yeah. You know? so Like a pizza delivery yeah, driver. Yeah, basically, yeah. People hit you on your page back then, and uh, you ask them where they at, you go meet them, or they'll meet you somewhere, you know? So, And that's how it was back then. I can't make any comments on what's going on today. Mm -hmm. Like I said, it's been 15 years I haven't been out there. And what was like a, a typical situation? I mean, was it meeting in parking lots? Was it meeting, or was it just all over the place? All over the place. Yeah. In there, how, Excuse me. Wherever they lived, might meet me here, might meet me there. You know, you all over the place. You know, it could be anywhere. It could be at cars. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. You know, it was amazing. Like now, everything is under surveillance. Back then, you know, if I'm out on the street two, three o'clock in the morning, somebody want to meet me on the side street somewhere, I'd be like, nah, meet me at cars. Mm -hmm. You know, literally, meet me at cars. I'll be on aisle 15. <laughs> Really? You know, yeah, literally. You know, because I, you know, two, three o'clock in the morning, a lot of stuff happens on the street. And if you get caught up in the wrong spot, anything can happen. That's where you get the things where a drug deal went bad. You know, it's always late in the morning, early in the morning. People meeting people on side streets and stuff like that. I didn't do that. You know, I prefer to meet somebody at cars, you know, whether in the parking lot or in the store. And how did you come to that? How did you realize, like, it's better for me to meet in, like, a... Because I've been in the streets all my life. I was born and raised in New York. Not to say that I was selling drugs at an early age, but I was familiar with the streets. 
And I always said, nah, somebody called me at 3 o'clock in the morning and said, yo, meet me in Fairview on 12th. No, nah, I'm not meeting you in Fairview on 12th and no 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. Not in Fairview. I'll meet you at cars in Fairview, you know, but I'm not meeting you on no side streets or anything like that. I was always cautious about my surroundings. Mm-hmm. And I didn't carry a gun. I did at the beginning, and then I stopped, you know. Why'd you stop? They changed the drug law. You know, they changed the drug law, so it was either put the gun down or put the drugs away. I put the gun down, you know, because the drugs was making me money. So I stopped carrying a gun because it was a federal crime. You get caught with a gun and drugs, it's an automatic 10 years on top of if you whatever amount of drugs you had. So I stopped carrying a gun. Did you notice that having an effect on anybody else around you? It had an effect on people when I went to jail. You know, but as far as me doing what I was doing, I just see it as having an effect on anyone. But then most drug dealers don't. It probably did have an effect on a lot of people and I didn't recognize it because I'm running the streets. And I was very selfish. And that's with all drug dealers. And the reason why I say that, I know especially for myself, is that, yeah, I was taking care of my family and other people, but I didn't think about the consequences mm-hmm. as far as going to jail and being away from my family. You know, so yeah, we was living a good life, but that was my selfishness. You know, not taking into consideration, yo, man, you can go to jail for doing this. Never even thought about it. I knew I could go to jail, but when you out there and you making money, that thought don't come through your mind, mm-hmm. you know, about going to jail. Or maybe it's even just a, a fleeting thought. Nope. Like it's it's there one second and then gone the next. You know, I done had days where, i say if I made $5,000 in a day, it would scare me, literally. I'm like, damn, I done made all this money in this one day. Mm-hmm. And this was selling little pieces. What I mean by pieces, half a gram, grams, you know. And that would scare me, you know. And I might go home for a minute, but now I'm right back out there. Mm-hmm. Just like you say, it's a passing thought, you know. But uh, no, I was selfish. You know, you get caught up into that life. It's just like a drug dealer. I mean, a drug user, you know. They get caught up into smoking crack, and then next thing you know, you're addicted to it. You know, drug dealers, it's similar. Mm-hmm. You know, this is how I always looked at it, is that I'm no better than them. We're the same. You out here at 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning getting high. I'm out here at 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning trying to get the money. You know, I'm just not using the drugs, but I'm running just like a drug drug user. You know, I'm out there all night hustling, doing whatever, you know, but... I've never dealt with, I never used crack, but I was around it a lot. You know, that's a, that's an interesting perspective that a drug user is the same as a drug dealer and vice versa, because I think that a drug dealer may not, generally a drug dealer may not think of it that way. You know, I'm better than them. I'm better than yeah. the junkie. They uh, Most drug dealers do. They look at the person that's using the drugs, uh, yeah, I'm better than you. You know, but I didn't look at it like that. I treated everybody with respect because I know they had an addiction and they had a problem. You know what I'm saying? So, no, I didn't talk down to them. 
I've talked, I talk to him just like I talk, I'm talking to you right now, mm-hmm. you know, you know, with no disrespect because they're, they, they're an addict, you know, I know how hard that is. Well, I can just imagine, you know, this is all you want to do. This is what you feed for. This is what you live for is to get high mm-hmm. and you can't get no help, you know, so I can imagine how hard that is. Whereas... Here a good example. A drug dealer do 10 years, and I don't hear, I got friends that did 10 years in jail, get out and not had the discipline to leave it alone, okay, for us not getting back in the game. Just went straight back to it. Get right back into it. You know, I did it a couple of times myself. Went to jail, got out, got back into it. Went to jail, got out, got back into it. Because what we do is we try to do the right thing. We get a job. Okay, but then the worst thing that we do as an ex-drug dealer to somebody that's trying to be productive in society is that we start to compare. And there's no comparing. What I mean by comparing, you got a job, say you got a job making $25 an hour, Mm -hmm. okay? And you working eight hours, so you're making a couple hundred dollars. But then in the same breath, if you you make one seal, you're making a couple hundred dollars. Mm -hmm. So you got to have discipline to... Tell yourself, yo, I'm done with that life. And that's extremely hard. Let me tell you a story. When I was in jail this last time, I literally sat down and thought to myself, when you get out, you're going to be 50 years old. You can go, you're going to get three years of probation. You can do two years of probation and then get back in the game. That makes me 53 years old. And then I said, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, I said, well, You'll be 53, you get back in the game, you're going back to jail at 56. Because normally you have a good three-year run. You're going back to jail at 56. And you're looking at 15 to 20 years. So, and I said, I'd be 53. I said, I'm done. And I haven't touched drugs since. Because I didn't want to die in jail. I didn't want to not be there for my grandkids and for my kids, the rest of my kids' life. Mm-hmm. You know, and my mother's getting old, you know, I didn't want to be in jail and she passed away. I already lost somebody who was extremely important to me. You know, that was my heart. I lost her while I was incarcerated, you know, so I made the decision. When I got out, I was going to do whatever I needed to do, not to ever go back to jail. So far, I'm doing pretty good. So it sounds like at a certain point, jail was a deterrent after you kind of did the math and you thought about all the other people um but before that was jail ever a motivation to not sell drugs or was it just an unfortunate um repercussion no well you know and i think this goes for anybody that's out there on them streets no jail is not a deterrent when you out there making money you're not thinking about going to jail that's the furthest thought from your mind you're not worried about it you know, people always say to me, do you have to watch over your shoulder? I've never did, you know, because, you know, everybody that's hustling out there on the street, they think they're smarter than the police. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. you think the way you're doing it, you're good. Whether you're on a low, you're not riding, you're not flashy, you're not riding around the fly cars, you're not doing this and that, you're not wearing a whole lot of jewelry, so you're trying to stay on the low. And it don't help because... If they want you and they know that you out there and you getting a lot of money or you selling drugs, they're going to get you, you know, because somebody's going to tell, you know. So now there's no way around it. If you stay in it long enough, you're going to jail. 
there's two things that happen when you're out there on the street. You either go to jail or you get killed. And that's plain and simple, you know? I know a lot of people that went to jail and I know a lot of people that got killed. I was lucky, mm -hmm. you know? I feel that I was blessed, yeah, I went to jail. But I was able to get out this time and change my life, do the right thing, you know? And working with the kids, wow, it's a blessing. Mm -hmm. You know, how long did it take you to realize that it ends one of those ways, either in jail or killed? Well, I always knew that. Now, I was born and raised in New York. So even though I was down the street hustling, I was on the street, you know. So even coming up as a kid, you know, people went to jail, people died, you know. And then when I got older and I got into the game, I seen the same thing. It don't ne that never changes, you know. That never changes. Mm -hmm. That those two things never changes. If you're out there on the street and you hustling and selling drugs, it's going to be one or the other, mm -hmm. without a question. You either going to jail or you're going to get killed. Well, maybe not get killed or get shot or get hurt real bad because it's coming from that type of life. Did you ever have any reservations or moral problems with selling drugs? No, I didn't, you know. That was my way of life. That was my livelihood, you know. So my thought was, yo, I'm just going to do this to take care of my family and look out for the people that was close to me. And I did that, you know. I, no, I didn't think about going to jail, you know. And then most uh, most drug dealers... I can't even say most. I, I really don't know the percentage, but they're not afraid to go to jail. That's why they continue to make the same mistake over and over again. Because they say, I can do this time. One time when I was locked up, this young kid comes in and, you know, we talking. He was about, damn, I asked him how old he was. Then he said he was 18. And we talking and I told him, he told me his charge. I said, man, you're looking at 10 years. And he looked at me and said, man, I could do 10 years. I was like, wow. You know, because I had just got sentenced. I had got fired. And I was disgusted. But I knew I was going to do that time. Mm -hmm. and I'm looking at this young kid. And I looked at him and I told him, I said, man, yeah, I know you can do the 10 years because you ain't got no choice. So that means you need to make better choices just like I need to make better choices so we don't have to do this time. Mm -hmm. You know, he was acting like 10 years was nothing. I was, shoot, they gave me five years. And I was like, this was my first charge actually my second charge and I was sick but I knew I had to do it there was no way around it mm -hmm. you know so you make the adjustment that's one thing when God blessed us to be here he makes us where we can adjust to basically anything you know and that's true no matter how hard times are or how good times are we make those adjustments you look at the homeless situation you know they made adjustments to be out there because they trying to do better, but it's taking time. You know, so you, yeah, whatever, whatever situation you in, you can make that adjustment to live in that situation. You know, so when you go to jail, you make that adjustment. This is where I'm going to be for X amount of years. And you just keep it pushing because you, you, you can't get around it. Mm -hmm. You know, it sounds like a little bit of what it came down to is perspective. So you went in there with the perspective of not wanting to be in there. And were you talking about in jail? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Nobody wants to be in jail. I guess I should rephrase. I mean, <laughs> I mean that you went in there like I'm not coming back and I'm not this is intolerable. Whereas whereas the 
the young man that you were talking about before was like, I can do 10 years. You know, you were thinking like, I don't want to do five years. Right. But even with that, even with the perspective that you're telling yourself that I don't want to go to jail, I don't want to do this time. Okay, but then you you go to jail and you do that time. Now it's a mindset. Mm-hmm. It's it's a total mindset. Like I just told you, I literally sat down, and that's what I thought. Who does that? <laughs> you know why should you you have to even go there? Sitting here thinking, okay, I got to plan this out so I don't go back to jail. A lot of people don't do that, and then they end up back in jail. I I was done, you know, and I needed to find it where I had to get my mind right. You know, because everything to me is mental preparation. And I prepared myself before I left jail. It's just like, okay, the first time I went to jail, I used to smoke, okay, smoke weed. Mm-hmm. So when I get out, you know, I go see my PO. He tell me, you can't smoke. I said, I'm going to smoke. I get violated. So I go back to jail for 50 more days. So now it's a different mindset for me. I'm like, now I'm thinking, whereas the first time I, I, I'm thinking, I can't wait to get out of jail to smoke. The second time, I'm thinking, I'm not smoking anything because I'm not coming back to jail. Mm-hmm. And that's just what I did. So it is a mindset. You know, it's just like, well, to me anyway, because I teach this to my kids. It's about mental preparation. It's about preparing yourself mentally for the things that you want to do. You know you got to go to school for X amount of hours. You got to take X amount of classes. So you prepare yourself mentally. Yo, I'm going to algebra and I'm going to sit there and I'm going to focus and I'm going to get it right. And then you go to trigonometry and it's the same thing. It's the point of you preparing yourself mentally. It's not just basketball. That's life in general. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. At least that's how I see it. Because if I wouldn't have prepared myself when I got out this time, which was 10 years ago, I probably went back to selling drugs. But I was determined and it's a, it was a mindset for me. you know. And I got myself prepared while I was in jail. So when I got out, Mentally, I didn't have to get back out there. You know, I got out, got a job right quick, and I just stuck with it. You know, I was patient with myself. Why do you think that you had that mindset while other people don't really have that mindset? Like I was saying, right, everything to me is mental preparation. It's preparing myself mentally. And when I did that, and I think that comes from basketball, you know, you know, you have to be mentally strong. You got to have mental toughness. You got to prepare yourself. And and I did that, you know, and it worked for me, you know. I prepared myself mentally when I get out that it's going to be hard. To today, it's still hard for me because because of all the money that I used to have. and But I'm more happier. Mm-hmm. Less money, more happiness, you know. And I'm helping more people, more kids to understand that you don't, have to get into that life. You can be successful just by doing well in school. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? You know? And if you focus on the positive and be patient, it can work out for you. Then you don't have to get out there on the streets. So the other day on the phone, you said that all drug dealers aren't thugs. What did you mean by that? Just what I, what I said, all drug dealers aren't thugs. I don't consider myself a thug. I've never killed anybody. I got into fights when I was younger. Just because I was selling drugs don't make me a thug. What that make me is a criminal. I'm breaking the law. As you can say the same thing where you have doctors, lawyers, professional athletes. They're not thugs. 
they got into the drug life. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at the doctors right now, the opiate crisis. Mm-hmm. You know, they got a lot to do with that. They're not considered thugs. You know, when I was out there on the streets, yeah, I carried a gun for a short period of time, and then I put it up. I've never had issues where I needed to carry a pistol. So now I don't believe all drug dealers are thugs. And what is the 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 meaning of a thug? Is a thug a kid that go around shooting people, or is a thug a kid that's just selling th- drugs? You know, so you got to figure out that meaning. I didn't consider myself a thug. I did hurt people because I was selling dr- drugs, but far as shooting, stabbings, and stuff like that, no, I didn't ever hurt anybody. You know, you also said that one judge said that you were like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Right. Yeah, he told me that. Uh, That was, I think that was my second case where the judge told me, he said, man, you like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. On one hand, you're doing a real good thing for the community because you're helping kids out. Then on the other hand, you're selling crack cocaine at night, you know? And he was right, you know? So that that's two different personalities, mm-hmm. you know. How is it that you can do the right thing, and why not make that your form where that's all you do, you know, is work with the kids? I wish I I wish that was at the time all I did, but I couldn't give up selling drugs because I was the money was good, you know. I didn't have to work, you know. And to me, and this is just my opinion. I think most drug dealers are lazy. We don't want to get out there and have to work because we don't have to work and make so much money. Yeah, yeah. You know, so that makes you lazy. You know, I'm, I'm talking for myself because I know I wasn't thinking about working. You know, even though selling drugs is harder than working. I think that it's also easy to get stuck in a routine for anybody. You know, if this is something that's working, then why stop doing it? Right. Why stop doing it and you're making a lot of money? Mm-hmm. So when was it that you came to Anchorage? What year was that? 76. 76, okay. And why did you come to Anchorage? I was getting in trouble in New York. And my mother, I was like, I came up here 16. So 14, 15, I wouldn't say I was a troubled kid, but I was a kid that was getting in a lot of trouble. You know what I'm saying? Okay, yeah. Yeah, I was, I was a kid that was getting in a lot of trouble. And my mother was afraid that I was going to get killed. One time my mother told me, I was 12 years old, and I come home, I had got hit in the head with a bat, and it wasn't that somebody tried to hurt me. I actually was playing baseball, and I was the bat catcher, and I was too close to the batter, and he hit me with the bat. And, and my mother told me, she said, you probably be dead by the time you're 13. So when I got the opportunity, actually I came up here to see a cousin of mine, my cousin that taught me how to play basketball. He had caught the case, so he was locked up. So I wanted to see him. So when I came up here, I was like, wow. You know, it was totally different. I've never left New York before in my life. And I was like, man, it's so quiet. You know, look at all these trees, you know. And I and I don't like trees, <laughs> okay? And, uh, Why don't you like trees? I don't like trees. I don't do nothing where there's trees, <laughs> okay? Everybody laugh at me when I say that, right? So, uh, and I liked it. You know, I was like, I told my mother I wasn't coming back. I wanted to stay. I got a job at the Captain Cook. I was 16. You need to be 18. I was making $8 an hour. And I was happy. You know, I never made that much money. I wasn't even thinking about going back to school. 
that was the furthest thought from my mind. I'm up here, I'm thinking I'm 16, I got me a job, you know, no troubles, you know. So I was like, shoot, I'm, I'm not going back to school. Mm-hmm. And then Coach White, you know, famous Coach White, the best coach to ever coach in the state of Alaska. He came to see me at Fairview Center. That's when I first met him. And he asked me where I was going. And I told him I didn't know, you know, I was familiar with the schools. But everybody, I'm coming from New York, so all I knew was black schools. That's all I ever been to. My high school was predominantly black. Middle school was predominantly black. Elementary was predominantly black. Not predominantly black, all black. Okay. Okay. And my first thought was if I go to high school, what school got the most blacks? Because that's all I knew. I'm not that I'm a racist or anything like that, but that's what I knew. Mm-hmm. And everybody said East Bartlett. So when I did decide to make that decision to go back to school, I chose East, you know? And I'm glad I did. I've never thought about going to college. And I didn't think I was a bad basketball player. And then I ended up getting scholarships. So what I push with the kids now is that I'm, I don't know if this ball can get you to the NBA, WNBA, overseas, or whatever, but I do know is that if you work hard at it, it can pay for your college. Mm-hmm. That's what's important to me, to try to help the kids get a scholarship to college. You know, if even if it's not a full scholarship, anything that can save the family money, you know, any scholarship, I think is a good thing. And I kind of want to get back to, or I guess referencing what you said earlier about the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde dichotomy. Mm-hmm. And you were doing the drug thing at night and then you were teaching kids during the day. Was there ever a point where you felt like you were being drawn more toward the positive? No, that never. When you say positive, I'm drawing more to just working the kids out and making them better. Yeah. Nah, never even crossed my mind. I'm just being 100 honest with you. Yeah. I knew that, yeah, I wanted to do this because I still love basketball. You know, I used to sell drugs to four or five o'clock in the morning. Then I get up and go work out kids from eight to twelve. And then they playing, say they playing at Fairview and they and and UAA players are there and all the best players in the city are there. I'm there. You know? Mm-hmm. I always played. I've never stopped playing basketball. You know? I used to be in the gym playing. I look at my page, it say full. That's how many calls I got from people that's looking to buy drugs. But I didn't respond because I was playing basketball. I've never let anything interfere with basketball. If people call me and say, yo, Muff, they hooping over here, you know, and act, this person going to be there, this person going to be there. Oh, yeah, I'll be there. You know, it was not, I've never put drugs in front of basketball. I always loved basketball for some reason. I was just telling a kid the other day, because he was telling me how he took two months off from playing. And I couldn't get that. And I told him, I said, you know what? The first time I ever took months off from playing, I was in my 50s from the age of 13 when I started Uh to in my 50s. I've never took months off, you know, more or less a couple of weeks. I just can't recall me ever doing that, you know. The longest I ever took off from playing was about five or six months. And I was in my mid-50s. And why did you? Why did I take time off? Yeah. I was playing in the 50 and over and I pulled my hamstring. Okay. And it actually was healed after about a month or so. 
but I just didn't play, you know. For some reason, I lost that edge of going to the gym. And it lasted about five. But let me rephrase that. I was going to the gym, but I was just working kids out. Mm -hmm. But me, myself, I wasn't playing. You and know? how did that make you feel? I didn't even think about it. You know, I'm still in the gym. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm helping the kids out every day, seven days a week. But I'm just not playing. You know, even to today, the last time I played in the game, it's been about a year since I played. But I'm in great shape because all I do all day is run down rebounds. Mm -hmm. Okay, five and six hours running this way, that way, that way. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So I, when I took those seven months off besides, and I didn't have as many kids, you know, I go to the gym three or four hours running down. Now I run down rebounds for seven, eight hours a day. So I feel I'm in pretty good shape, you know. And then I'm always shooting around with the kids. You know, we play shooting games and things like that. I even play one-on-one -on -one with them, you know. So I'm still playing. I'm still active. Actually, I had two high school kids just last week. I'm not going to say their names. But one goes to service, one goes to the West. They're about six three each. So we working out and then... Both of them tell me, Muff, we can beat you. I guarantee you I can beat you. And I was like, man, y'all can't beat me. I said, you know what's going to happen? Y'all going to have to go back to school and tell all your friends a senior citizen beat you. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, matter of fact, let's do this. If y'all beat me, I'm going to give each one of y'all $20, you know? Yeah. And if y'all lose, y'all got to run 25 win sprints. They said, all right, all right. They was keen on getting that $20. They ran 25 win sprints. <laughs> <laughs> so you won. Yeah. And was this you against both of them or nah, individually? one on one, one okay. at a time. So they underestimated you. I don't see how. I'm teaching you. I'm showing you everything that, you know, I'm not telling you to do anything. I'm showing you how to do it, whether it's between the legs, behind the back, pull up, jump up. I'm showing you. So that's right there show you that I can still move, you know, and, yeah, you got more ability than I have. You might be quicker than I am, but I'm way more smarter than you. Mm -hmm. And that carries a lot of weight to have knowledge of the game, you know. So, yeah, I beat both of them. So I want to get back to basketball. But before that, would you mind talking about your wife, Michelle, and what happened? <laughs> That's... Uh... That's uh, that was my girl, man. We was together twenty three years. We was married nineteen. We got three kids together. You know that was a hard thing for me. That was to lose her. It's still hard. You know what I mean? And she she'll be gone twenty years, September twenty six. You know she was brutally murdered. They never found out who did it. Uh. That was my girl. I miss her every day. It's amazing how you lose somebody that close to you and you, I don't want to say you never get over it because if, if I haven't got over it, I wouldn't be where I am today. But I learned how to deal with it. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? You know, I was just talking to a friend of mine Matter of fact, just the other day, she lost her boyfriend 18 months ago. And we was talking because he died on the 17th of March, I believe. And every 17th, I call her, you know, check on her, see how she's doing. 
And I was telling him, I said, man, God is so merciful that he puts someone in your heart, you know, and then he takes them from you, but he leaves enough space in your heart where you can fall in love again. You know, it's still love. Mm-hmm. And still have that person in your heart. You know what I'm saying? Because I remarried, you know what I'm saying, since Michelle. But that was my, that's my heart. She's my screenshot on my phone. And mm-hmm. it'd be 20 years, September 26th. And it's, it's, it's a hard thing, you know, to lose somebody that close to you, you know. At least it was for me. And plus, on top of that, I was incarcerated, you know. So it was like, she's gone. I'm not there for my kids. Because me, you know, yeah, I had my downfalls as a father because uh, me going to jail and being away from my kids. But I think I'm a great father. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. You know, I got a relationship with all of my kids, you know, and I'm happy about that. You know, I talk to them on the regular and I know my kids love me because they know I, I, I'm trying to do the best that I can. And all of them are grown, you know, so all of them got jobs. They're taking care of themselves. So I'm pretty happy with all of my kids. You know, they're responsible. They, none of them are selling drugs, using drugs, you know, so... You know, but Michelle, that was a hard thing to swallow. But like I say, God is so merciful to give us strength to handle anything that he put on us. So that was hard times. But it's hard to even say I got over it. But I'm dealing with it. I don't think you ever get over something like that. Nah, you don't, you know. You don't get over it. You learn how to deal with it. Mm -hmm. And that's part of your life. You know, you miss that person. You know, I was just listening to um, John McCain's wife last night on TV, and she was saying, you know, it's his year, first year anniversary of him passing away, and uh, she was saying she think about him every day, and I'm thinking to myself, I said, you're going to think about him every day for 20 years, 30 years, as long as you're alive, mm-hmm. because he's in your heart, you know, and you're going to miss him. All those years that y'all been together, and I... I look at me and Michelle, you know, I met her when she was 15. I was 17 and we was together ever since, you know. I was my best friend on top of being my wife. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's hard, but you just, everything is hard in life and you learn how to deal with it. I'm a firm believer that God don't put anything on us that we can't handle, no matter how hard it might seem. You know, I look at it and I, you know, me and a kid was talking and he was talking about how hard it is and this and that. And I was like, man, you live in a big house. I said, you talking about it's hard. You look at these homeless people. That's what's hard, not having nowhere to live. You know, mm-hmm. not knowing when you're going to eat. It's not hard for you. You know, you're pretty comfortable. You know, you're doing, you're doing okay in school, but, you know, you can do better. But you ain't got to worry about a whole lot of stuff. So, no, even now, you know, I'm living okay life, you know, just making it work, but I'm happy and I'm thankful, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm really, truly thankful that I have a place to stay. I can eat something every day, you know. I got a car. The little things, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I don't have to walk here and there. We take a lot of stuff for granted, you know, until you lose it all. And then when you lose it all, how do you bounce back? Are you strong enough to take care of yourself? 
you know, because that's what the bill boils down to. How strong are you mentally? To me, everything falls back to mental preparation, mental toughness, you know, so. So you said you were incarcerated at the time that it happened. Yeah, I was. And you heard about it in prison? Yeah, what happened was I called a friend and she was crying. And I said, what's the matter? And she says to me, Michelle is dead. I said, what you talking about? She said, Michelle got killed. I said, no, let me call you back. So I get off the phone, and at this time, my mother was in New York. So I called my mother, and she was crying. And I said, what's the matter? And she told me, she said, Michelle got killed. So devastation ain't even the word I felt. <laughs> you know, I'm thankful that, you know, I was dealt that bad news, and all I can do it's pray. And that's what I did. Literally. I prayed day and night. I'm Muslim. So I prayed five times a day. It's on top of praying five times a day. I'm praying all day. I'm doing extra prayers. And the reason why is because I knew there was nowhere else I can get strength from to handle this situation. There's nowhere else. I had a friend about four years ago. I'm at the Alaska USA. She lost her husband about six months prior to me seeing her. And, you know, she crying. So, you know, I walk up on her, I give her a hug, and we talking. And I said, man, all you can do is ask your Lord to give you strength. And she tells me, well, I got my sister. I said, that ain't going to help you. I said, that's not going to help at all. If you don't go to your Lord and ask your Lord to give you strength and and make this easier for you, you know, and it ain't gonna work. You know, at least that's how I felt, mm -hmm. you know, cause I know what works for me. Even with my friend that I was just telling you, she lost her boyfriend uh, 17 months ago and I talked to her every day and all I push is, yo, you got to take this to your Lord cause that's the only one that can help you. You know, you're in a situation, the only one that can give you strength is your Lord, nobody else. If you can't, if you don't believe in God, you got an issue, you know, because you're going to be in a lot of pain for a long period of time. Because even with your Lord giving you strength, you're going to be in pain for a long period of time. You know, when you lose somebody that dear to you and that close to you, that, it don't go away in a couple of weeks, a couple of years. Mm -hmm. You know, that takes a while, you know, and I always told her that. And she, she prayed, you know, and she prayed a lot. And it helped and she's still in pain. You know, she still don't go away. You know, you just learn how to deal with it. You know, and I think, because I've gone through something similar with a really good friend. Mm -hmm. And you really notice it in unexpected ways. You know, whether you're going to the store and something reminds you of them. You know, <laughs> it, it pops up everywhere throughout your entire life. You are 100% right. You know, I had a cousin tell me when I came home after Michelle got killed, she says, that's the thing about, that's when Allah blesses you with memories because now all you got is memories. And that's extremely important. I could, you know, because we live in the Fairview, but a lot of times we didn't, but our kids was raised in Fairview. And I could ride down Fairview and literally, 
say, damn, we stayed here, this and that. I can look at pictures of Michelle and remember what we did that day just by looking at her outfit, you know? So, mm -hmm. you know, memories are powerful, you know what I'm saying? The good ones and the bad ones. As a matter of fact, uh, my friend I was just talking to, because the 17th, you know, her boyfriend had died, and I said, you know what, memories are so funny. You can think about them, and you say because they're gone, and then you got these memories that make you laugh. The memories them put a smile on your face, you know? So that's what I live off with myself. You know, I look at pictures. I still, it's been 20 years, and I still miss her, mm -hmm. you know? But I guess that's normal. I don't know. I've never lost nobody that's this close to me. How much longer were you incarcerated um, after you heard that? Uh, like four or five months. Four know? or five months more. After she died, she died, in no, no, she died September 26, 99. I actually came up for a funeral on October 6th, November 7th, January, February, March. I was in jail five more months after she died. But I was able to come to her funeral, actually to the awake, mm -hmm. you know, because my, I was in the feds and actually I was in Seattle. So I was able to come up, had to pay for everything, you know, but uh, I was able to see her before they laid her to rest. And what was it like? Obviously, going to that, but then going, going right back. back. Yeah, going back. Oh, man. That, that was. Now she's gone. I know that they buried now. I'm missing her. You know, I'm going through this knowing that I'm never going to see her again. And just all that pain. And then on top of that, it was the pain of not being able to be there for my kids, knowing that they in pain. And there's nothing I can do to help them. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So I'm dealing with a double whammy here. But like I said, man, God don't put nothing on you that you can't handle. I stayed in prayer. You know, I talked to them every day, you know, a few times a day, you know, to try to help to keep them strong. You know what I'm saying? So I couldn't, that was the longest five months of my life. I couldn't wait to get to my kids. Mm -hmm. What kind of things were you saying? When you were praying, were you asking for strength? Were you asking for... Oh, yeah. For oh, yeah. Without a doubt. Give me strength to handle this situation. Bless my kids to keep them healthy, to give them strength so I can get there to take care of them. But it was mainly give me strength to handle this because I was weak. You know, I'm crying all the time. I'm just staying in myself. I'm staying in myself and praying, you know? And that's what I needed. I needed strength from somewhere to help me deal with this situation because it wasn't going away. It wasn't going anywhere. You know what I mean? And I needed something. That I needed someone to help me. And the only one that can help me was my Lord. You know? And I truly believed that. And I and I was right. That's what I asked for. Mainly, you know, just give me strength to, so I can handle this. You know? Because it was the hardest thing I ever do in my life. It wasn't even doing the time. <laughs> I could do the time, but how am I going to deal with her not being here? How do I deal with the next five months? My kids are in pain and I'm not there with them. You know, things like that, you know. You know, give me strength to handle that. I talk to my kids on the regular every day, even though I was doing that before she died, you know. But it was hard. Some days it's hard right now and it's been 20 years next month, mm -hmm. you know. 
it's still it's not as hard, but you know you have your moments. And anybody that lost somebody that was really dear to them, they know what I'm talking about. You know, you don't understand until you lose somebody that close to you. You know, and every death is different. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it, it it would be different if I lost one of my kids. You know, just like me losing my wife, it'll be a little different. I just lost a brother last year. Matter of fact, September 1st would be a year, you know, to cancer. And that was totally different than Michelle. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It was totally different, you know? Yeah, that's my brother and I loved him, but it wasn't as hard as Michelle was. I lost my best friend three years ago, you know? And that was hard too, but nothing compared to Michelle, mm-hmm. <laughs> okay? You know, you know, nothing compares to her. That was the hardest thing. Even my grandmother, me and my grandmother, my grandmother died in 97, Michelle died. Those are the two of my favorite best women in the world, you know. And when she died, I took it hard. But when Michelle died, I was devastated, you know. I was devastated. You know, that was the hardest thing I ever went through in my life. Hell with going to jail. That was nothing compared to the pain that I had when I lost her. You said that you were spending a lot of time in your cell just, just praying. Mm-hmm. Was there a moment when you decided to leave your cell because you were like, okay, I feel I feel better, a little better now? Oh, yeah, I didn't just, when I mean I, I spent a lot of time in my cell because I was, it wasn't just the praying, I was doing a lot of reading, mm-hmm. you know, reading my Quran, Islamic literature. Oh, no, I still, through all of that, I they had a basketball court. So I would go there every day, two or three times a day. You know, I'm still shooting, you know what I'm saying? You know, I'm still doing my running and my shooting, you know. But the pain no, never never went away, you know. Like I was telling my friend, I said, it's not that we get over it. We learn how to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And and that's what it is. You, you don't get over something like that. You learn how to deal with it. So by learning how to deal with it, it makes it easier. But that pain is always there. It's just not as, as bad. You miss that person because they were so dear to you. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? So, but nah, you know, I'm handling it a whole lot better 20 years later, <laughs> but it's still hard. Mm-hmm. You know, I mess all the time. So between dealing drugs, prison, and tragedy, I feel like your path to where you are now has been a difficult one. How is it that you became a basketball coach? I don't consider myself a coach, first and foremost. Okay? I don't have that wide responsibility, you know, as a coach has. What brought me to this, my girlfriend, my ex-girlfriend, when I came home in 09, she was like, why don't you get into teaching basketball? And I was like, man, I don't want to be bothered with that. I said, I said, I don't really want to do that. So in 2011, my son was a junior. I think it was 2010. I think it was 2011. So I took Jalil, Marcus, Austin, and Issa. I used to pick them up every day. I used to pick them up every day after school. They would meet me at the center, Fairview Center. And me, Jalil, and Marcus, they, Marcus and Jalil went to East. So we get to the center about 2.15. So I'm working them out, you know, helping them on certain things. And all we had was an hour. That wasn't enough time for me. And these are your kids? 
Well, no, just one was my kid. Jalil was my son. Marcus was my girlfriend's son. Austin was Jalil's first cousin. That was my nephew's son. And Issa was his cousin. Okay. You know, and I'm just doing this, trying to help out the family. Yeah. You know what I mean? Just trying to help them become better players, you know. And Fairview just wasn't enough time. I don't know how, and I don't remember how I got to Alaska Club South. Because I was out there for eight years teaching kids how to play basketball. But I don't remember how, how that happened. And and that's how it started. And it just snowballed. You know, I'm at, I'm at the Alaska Club working my son out. And people asked me, was I a trainer? You know, and I was like, nah, I just working my son out. You know, I passed away a lot of people. And then one day I called my son and my daughter. These are my two oldest kids. And I said, this is what I'm thinking about doing. And the first thing that came out their mouth was I can't do it for free. Because I did that for Trajan Langdon. Well, actually, my cousin was running it, but it was under his name. And it was Alaska Basketball Development Program. And I did that for some years. And when I did it, I did it for free. So... My kids was telling me, they said, Avi, you, that, that's what you should do, but you can't do it for free. So I says to them, how much should I charge? I said, I don't know how much to charge somebody for teaching them how to play basketball. They said, $50 an hour. I said, nah, no way. I said, I can't do that. I said, I can't charge nobody $50 an hour. I said, I'm going to do $30. You know, what's funny is that there's a couple of people right now in town you know, whenever you do something, you think you're the best at it, mm-hmm. right? And I think I'm the best at this. They make more money than me, you know, because they charge more. And I've just, what they charge, I, I couldn't charge it. You know what I'm saying? I get a kick out of watching a kid that couldn't do anything. Mm-hmm. And after two or three weeks, he can shoot a whole lot better. He can handle the ball better. You know, I really get a kick out of it. My daughter told me one time, she said, what kind of business you running? I said, what are you talking about? She said, in a business, people prices go up. You know? She said, you get raises. She said, with you, your prices go down. <laughs> because if a kid's with me for a, a period of time, I might tell his mother, just give me $20 an hour, you know? And I done done that a lot, you know? Mm-hmm. Or, or whereas I got a thing for single parents, you know, especially single mothers because I know how hard it is for a single mother to raise her kids. Because my mother was a single mother and she raised seven of us, you know? So when I'm dealing with, and and another thing, most time it'd be women that I deal with and we become friends. And I see that, you know, they have a little struggle. I drop prices, you know? You know, because if I'm charging you $30 an hour, one of your kids and you got three more kids if I can help you in any way I will by dropping the prices you know dropping my price I do it I do that on the regular you know so yeah I got to get paid but it's really I really get a kick out of watching the kids get better you know and then go watch and play a good example I had a kid he's at Diamond right now and he starts, okay? Mm-hmm. He was in the seventh grade, and I had taught him this move where you run hard to your right, then you cross over in front of you, and if the, if the defender's on you, and you're running hard to your right, and you cross over, he's going to keep going, and you're going to your left. 
and he did it in the game. I mean, I couldn't believe it. I was cracking up because it worked. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the game, he came up to me. He said, you seen that? I hit him with the crossover. I said, yeah. I said, you see it work, right? He said, yeah. He was so happy because what he worked on, he implemented in his game, and it worked for him. So, you know, I get a kick out of that. I know you said you don't consider what you do coaching, but ultimately it is it is kind of coaching, right? I, I look at myself as a teacher, you know. Not to say that coaches don't teach, you know what I mean? But mm-hmm. with me, I'm going to break down everything that I teach, show you, that I'm trying to show you. If I'm trying to show you a move, which is between the legs, behind the back, crossover, I'm not going to say, yo, Jeff, I want you to throw it through your legs, behind the back, crossover. I don't tell them to do anything. I'm the show type guy, you know? I'm going to show you everything that I'm going to teach you. And the reason why I do it like that is because if I tell you how to do something, most of the time I can't show you, especially in sports. You know what I mean? So if I can't show you, if I tell you how to do it, and I can't show you, if you do it and you, you're not doing it right, how can I correct it if I can't show you? Mm-hmm. You know, so everything that I, I teach him, I show him how to do it. So what was it like going straight after all those years? Hard. <laughs> Extremely hard. <laughs> One of the hardest things I ever did in my life was hard. It's still hard to today, you know, because it's always a money shortage. You know what I mean? Right now, it's always, you know, trying to make ends meet. You know, back in the day, I never had a money problem. You know what I mean? That's the hard thing. But there's no... I don't have that urge anymore, you know, to get out there and make that and get money. I don't have that no more. I don't want to go to jail. You know, that's the main thing. I'm afraid to go to jail now, you know. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I wasn't afraid to go to jail, you know. I always felt if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to sell drugs, I can't be afraid to go to jail because that's what's going to happen. That's what's going to happen. You're either going to die or you're going to jail. And I wasn't afraid to go to jail. I'm afraid to go to jail. Not just that I'm afraid to go to jail. I'm afraid to die in jail. (laughs) I don't want to die in jail. I want to be out here with my grandkids, with my kids, you know. Regardless how hard it might be for me, you know, I'm still able to help people out, you know. I got a kind heart, you know. If I see a homeless person, just last night I took my um, nephew to McDonald's and I walk in, there's this lady sitting there. And she was saying something to me, so I walked up to her, and she says to me, can you buy me something to eat, you know? And I wasn't even going to eat, you know, I was just taking my nephew, so I didn't have no money or anything on me. So my nephew was buying me two fish sandwiches. So I said, listen, I'm with so-and-so. I said, he's giving me two fish sandwiches. I'll just give you one of mine. So I gave her one of my fish sandwiches, you know? So... I've I'm all, I always been into helping people. I'm still, and I still see I'm able to help people without selling drugs. You know what I'm saying? So, nah, I don't have that urge anymore. I'm content. I'm satisfied with the money that I'm making, you know, and things like that. Because most of the time people get out of jail, they don't be satisfied with what they're getting. And they compare. That's the worst thing you can do. 
compare the money you make in selling drugs to your job. Mm-hmm. There's no comparison, none. And I tell friends that. I said, the worst thing you can do, man, when you get a job compared to which your lifestyle that you used to have. Excuse me. I said, don't do it. Because if you start comparing, you're going to get mad. You want to get mad. You'd be looking at yourself, damn, I work this job eight hours a day. I'm making $200. I can make $200 in 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. Don't compare, you know, because there's no comparing. You know, you can't even match. You're trying to do the right thing compared to doing the wrong thing because that's where you want to go back to once you start comparing uh, a legitimate job to a legitimate job, you know, so. The other day on the phone, you were telling me about one of your students and how they took something they learned in basketball and applied it to life. You said that happens a lot because basketball isn't always just about basketball, which you you alluded right, to earlier. Right. What I mean by meant by that was basketball is a life experience. I had a kid, we was talking about life is full of I was explaining to him that life is full of choices and decisions that we make. And that's all life is. And you're going to make bad choices and bad decisions your whole life. I don't care how old you get. And he brought it to me. He said, that's just like basketball. I said, what do you mean? He said, on the basketball court, we make choices and we make decisions. I said, you're absolutely right. Whether it's the right or the wrong choice or decision. I said, the only difference is life is way more serious because this is a game. You know, you can make a decision or a choice in life and destroy your whole life. Well, basketball ain't that that serious, you know, but it's true. You're making choices and decisions on the basketball court. Same thing as in life, you know. And I do try to uh, point that out to the kids. Basketball ain't just basketball. It's a life lesson, you know what I mean? A lot of things, like, for instance, like the kid was telling me is that the choices and decisions that he makes on the basketball court, sometimes they're good and sometimes they're not. And I said, that's the same thing in life. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We make good decisions, we make good choices, and we make terrible choices and terrible decisions. And that's with everybody that's alive, okay? And that's part of life, the choices and decisions that we make. What do you think is the most important thing that you've learned from basketball? Ah, that's a good question. Decision-making? Because you make a lot of decisions on the floor, good and bad, you know. And life is the same thing, you know. With me, I made bad decisions. I I made so many bad decisions. Not just to decide to sell drugs, you know. That's part of life, you know. I done made terrible decisions, you know. And I'm still making bad decisions. And But that's (laughs) what I learned from the basketball court. You know, even in basketball, we make bad decisions, bad choices, and you flip that, you make good decisions and good choices. And to me, it's hand in hand. When you understand, and it might take it might take a minute to understand the choices and decisions that we make, you know, whether they're right or wrong, whether they're good or bad, you know, that's just part of life. Hopefully, the choices and decisions that you make off the court is not life-threatening, you know, as far as... You going to jail, you killing somebody, you know, life-changing decisions, you know. But that's the difference, you know. When you're, you're making choices and decisions while you're away from the court, it can change your whole life, 
where when you're on the court, it doesn't. It don't do that. But you're still making choices and decisions, and you try to make the right one on the basketball court and off the basketball court, you know? But that's what everybody, we just make bad decisions. I don't care who you are, you know? You could be the richest man in the world, and every day you're going to make a bad decision and a bad choice. But you got all the money in the world. That just shows you everybody do it, you know? I'm quite sure you'd have made a couple of bad decisions and choices yourself. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know. I think that's why they say ain't nobody perfect because the decisions and the choices that we make, you know, and it's okay, you know. Sometimes you bounce back, sometimes you don't, you know. So, but yeah, I would have to say my decision making was. Because I, I used to make bad decisions on the court. I made bad decisions in life. And it took a while to learn from them. Lost Anchorage is written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Music is by Michelle McLaughlin. For more information about how you can support local grassroots journalism, Go to www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. Thank you to Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, Crystal Liska, Derek Adolph, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Sharon Liska, and Scott Liska for supporting this podcast at the company man level.